Local governments are dealing with some very significant issues that are coming from all different directions. I mean, local governments are talking about climate now. They're, they're talking about homelessness now. They're talking about social issues around choice. <laughs> they're talking about all kinds of, of issues that are really not heretofore seen at a, at a significant level at the local government level. Welcome to the Learning to Change podcast, where we explore the power of the modern learner's lens and put the focus on learning. I'm your host, Melissa Emler, and today we are delighted to have Nancy Hess join us. Nancy's profound work in the realms of management development and high-performing organizations, particularly with state and local governments, brings us an indispensable perspective to our conversation today. Nancy's experience is rooted in guiding leadership through change, developing strategies for more efficient HR structures, and fostering learning environments to address challenges in the local government sector. As the world experiences shifts in this post-pandemic era, Nancy has pivoted her focus toward understanding how professional learning occurs, particularly among emerging leaders in local government. Nancy and I also engage in a critical conversation about engagement, a term that's often misunderstood and oversimplified in both academic and corporate settings. We highlight how genuine engagement transcends mere visible involvement or compliance, instead being an intricate process tied to meaningful connections, active learning, and individual experiences. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this inspiring journey of growth, change, and learning. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Nancy Hess. Welcome to the show, Nancy. I'm very excited to have you today. And before we get too far into the conversation, I want you to talk about the work that you do on a regular basis, because I think when you describe sort of what you do and who you work with, that'll lead us right into the conversations about how those people you work with learn to change. So tell us about you. Hey, Missy, it's really good to be here. The work that I'm doing now, it has been in a just a great shift in the last couple of years. But my root work really is in the area of management development, organization development, HR, working with state and particularly local governments is really my bailiwick. That would be your cities and counties and, and townships. I work with their teams and leadership through change efforts. So I've always been involved in sort of efforts to either build a system from the ground up. We have, you know, worked to create sort of new structures for HR and learning, or I have been sort of more involved with, with transitions. If they've changed, their governments have been, you know, they've got a new board, they've got a new leader. There's just a lot of change that does actually need to be addressed in, in local government. So as that work has evolved over the last few years, I have become more attentive and interested in how learning takes place, particularly at the professional level, not just the leaders, the managers and leaders, but the ones coming up through the pipeline. There is a real shortage of uh uh, leaders and professionals entering local government right now. And so we're really examining what we can do 
to uh, change that and just help prepare young professionals for the challenges of local government, which is they're quite steep. It's so fascinating because I think that the work that you're doing is really, really important. And I think that local local government is really important in the whole scheme of things. We can really get caught up in what's happening on the national scene as it takes over the media. But so often what's happening in our local context um, really impacts our day-to-day lives in ways that we may not recognize until votes have been taken and we don't then feel heard. But some of that is people needing to pay attention. So I love the thought of working with local governments. And I love that you're working with them because I trust um, your ability to grow them in their work. And you've been working with local governments since a long, long time. Long time. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about one of the most exciting and rewarding local projects that you've been a part of. Well, you know, I had in the 90s a terrific opportunity uh, to partner with leaders in a county. And we were, it was just a, a you know serendipitous meeting of the minds. And the leaders in place at the time, the elected leaders, were really on board with improving the pay of the county. And we did a uh, basically a, a competency-based broadband pay program, which sounds kind of out there. I mean, we have a freedom of choice whether we want to be in an organization or not. So mm-hmm. if, if I'm talking to an employee who's really unhappy, I'm trying to remind them, you've got freedom here. So let's yeah. think about if you were to stay what that would look like. And the fact is, is that if employees feel they have sort of a portfolio, if they recognize that what they're doing, the projects they're approaching, this is a portfolio, which we should incorporate into the recognition and the reward program. So what we did is we we got a group together from across the county and we began talking about sort of what it would look like, uh, what a program might look like, what, what do we need to be successful? And that project, which really lasted for quite a while, was so satisfying because there was just such a great deal of engagement. We rented a large hall at a college and had, you know, several hundred uh, employees involved in in little like sort of focus groups. We just had a lot of conversations going on at the same time. And there was all these ahas, like they couldn't believe that people that worked in the prison had some of the same problems as, you know, people that, you know, worked over in human services or planning. And so it was a wonderful opportunity for cross-pollination that set the organization. They were very excited about what could happen. So that project, uh, because it combined all these elements of of thinking about how can we really perform at our best and it addressed the what's in this for me. And it also provided that engagement that is so sorely needed in most organizations, which is, I had no idea you guys did that over there. We really could use your help over here. Those kinds of conversations. And then from that, you have built sort of within your local entity, sort of the experts within. So you don't always need to look outside of your own organization for what's working. When if you don't you always say like remove the silos or something like that? You have an opportunity to learn from all of the good things that are happening and you can really double down on what's working and address what's not. Right. And th- and that goes back to that portfolio. So if instead of t- contracting out for some 
problem that has to do with technology. Let's look at what we have in-house to help us with our particular issue. And that goes into a, a, a your performance sort of, I call it again, not a file, but it's something that actually is recognized. That, and so you have sort of the, sort of the cross-training that's going on, which mm-hmm. is excellent for, for bench strength in an organization. Absolutely. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing local government or local entities in a post-pandemic era? What are you seeing? I am thinking so much about complexity these days because it's very difficult. You know, there is, if you're familiar at all with the Kinevin model, you, you have sort of this clear space of problems, you know, where problems, if you look at them, they're they're very easy to sort of look at in a linear fashion. They're very clearly cause and effect. If you are into the complicated problem space, you are most likely going to need some experts that to come together and help you get through problems. And then you have this complicated space, or excuse me, this complex space, problem space, which is really going to require no one person has a solution. It really requires lots of perspectives and and time. And and there's going to be some iteration. There's going to be some problems solving that's not going to be complete for maybe a a period of a long time. This is hard for government. Government doesn't tolerate uh, mistakes or failure. it's It's a political environment. It's very risky. So for government... They have a, you know, they really have a a mindset that there's got to be somebody who could fix this problem. And if we have to bring in a big consulting firm to tell us that the problem's solved, even if the problem's not really solved, that's a safer way to go. So a barrier to change is just not being able to see, you know, you may be confused, but not even know you're confused, which is you're not going to solve the problem that way. You have to recognize that the problem is over here in this complex space. And unless you talk to your, you know, or joining uh, municipalities or your state government and, and a whole host of stakeholders, your businesses in your community, your residents in your community, you got to talk to all of them. And before you can really think about how, you, how that's going to look on the other side. So local governments are dealing with some very significant issues that are coming from all different directions. I mean, local governments are talking about climate now. They're they're talking about homelessness now. They're talking about social issues around choice. <laughs> they're talking about all kinds of, of issues that are really um, not heretofore seen at a, at a significant level at the local government level. Right. So the other thing that when we were talking about getting to that complexity layer of change, you talked about a sense-making process. Can you talk about that with me for a little bit? Because I also have, um, pay a lot of attention to Harold Jarsh or Harold Yarkey. I'm not actually sure how you say his name, but he also talks a lot about um, personal knowledge networks and uh, making sense of things both personally and in your in the your context. So talk to me about the sense-making work that you're doing or thinking about. This is such a fascinating area to me right now. And, and Dave Snowden is the person that is responsible for developing the Kinevin uh, framework. Out of that work, uh, it's separate 
but it's related, is this SenseMaker platform. And it is essentially, you, if you think about it from a complexity standpoint, you're using it to probe the system. You're saying, you know, we can't solve the problem straight on, but we're going to gather a lot of stories. Uh, I, I love this this example. I was I sat in on a call once uh, with the British airline pilot a union, and they were looking at using the sense maker. So essentially, the tool is going to gather narratives. It's going to gather stories from people within the system. So what they were doing is they were talking to pilots, they were talking to uh, customers of the airline, all different levels of the airline and looking at uh, questions around safety and how their experience was with the airline. Well, what they learned uh, is that there are, for example, uh, pilots who don't feel necessarily safe in the seat because their co-pilot a might have been drinking, or B might be not might may not be following protocol. And you and I might say, well, that doesn't make sense ethically. He's got to report that. But if you know union cultures, you can you know it's very very difficult. You are really risking your your rank, your your standing, your status if you challenge somebody within the union hierarchy. So whether it's in that that scenario i i am working with police departments so my my uh, topic is community safety uh, it could be safety within a in a plant same kind of thing that that you when you probe the system you find out there's pockets of activity that are not reported otherwise and the 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 sense maker platform allows you to have enter these stories anonymously uh, you use some identifiers. You could use, you know, you could set the identifiers, and then you're also able to set some uh, filtering themes. The outcome is a visual map, which is almost like a heat map and cluster map that shows you like what kinds of themes are coming up again and again and again, and where are they coming from. So if there's a locator in the system, you know, what is the tag or the the identifier on that group? So there's a a way to organize patterns. That's what it is. It's a pattern yes. sensing tool. And you will use that a team to work with a facilitator to look at that and begin to ask questions. It, it's a way to enter into a um, sort of a, a, a journey of, you know, seeking where it is that you, you want to go with what you're learning from this. It's building context for an environment. Yeah, and that's so fascinating because it sort of gives you um, sort of lots of things to consider and then you can identify where you want to start the work and then build, start to build the work based on the context and the data that is coming directly from those that you're working with. So often consultants come in and <laughs> the people they're working with wonder uh, what they're doing wrong because you know suddenly now there's a consultant there to solve their problems where when you are working with your colleagues or with your leadership to identify the areas of concern and then build the context and start to do find solutions um, just through the conversations and the work, things um, sort of happen faster and with less conflict, essentially. I think it's important to to contrast 
what I'm presenting, because I think if you've never really heard of it before, you immediately associate it maybe like, well, what's the difference with a consultant team coming in? Well, number one, and I've done that many, many times. It is, uh, it's subjective. It's my, it's, it's really me interpreting what I hear. So you're not really getting a chance to tell your story directly. So there, and then there's the survey. Oh my goodness. How often do we fill out surveys and say, oh my gosh, this doesn't even ask a real question. And B, what does the organization do with 500 responses on a survey? They don't spend that much time analyzing it and nor do the consultants, by the way. So you really, the sense maker is using the power of uh, technology to really help map some of those responses and the way it's used is so important too. I think that once you begin using it in your organization and you can imagine it becomes a presence that it's all its own. It's not something that we do every five years. You know, it would be something that's always available to shape. How are the engagements? We're looking at community safety. We're looking at in the engagements in the community. What is it that moves people from feeling safe to unsafe? You know, if we can really be descriptive about that uh, and what's helping people, you know, move from feeling unsafe to safe. And that shifts and evolves over time because we are living in that kind of time. So this isn't a tool that's a one-time probe. It's something that that is envisioned to be a part of organization life as a way of evaluating the environment and building the context for what's happening. Not just the organization, for communities. Countries, Wales has a uh, sense maker for the whole health system. Singapore is another uh, user of sense maker. So Dave Snowden is the name you want to look up if you're curious about sense maker. Dave Snowden and sense maker and cognitive edge is the firm that he began. And it's a really interesting history. That is very fascinating. And the one thing that as you were talking about the difference with using SenseMaker um, that came up for me as you were talking was um, just the safety that's created in having it available. So when you do those one-time surveys once a year or maybe once every five years, we all know what that's like as well. There is a level of risk with that because you're not sure how much information you should share. Usually it's a rating system or a multiple choice and they're trying to get some, you know, numerical averaged data based on people's responses. And there's there's some level of risk in that from an employee's perspective. They don't want to be viewed. Um, if, if it is anonymous, there may be a little bit more safety, but they certainly don't want to be viewed as a whiner. And they really cannot associate or connect how this, their answer on this question is going to actually lead to the result or the the outcome that they're hoping for. You know, those once every once in a while kinds of surveys actually don't feel as safe as sort of something that lives and exists in an always available kind of way. And the other thing that, you know, when you're talking about safety, I always think it's such an interesting word because I always think about the optic of safety, organizations, schools, communities, we're always going for the optic of safety because we think that that is what really matters. And my example in this particular realm, um, as everyone knows, most of my work has been in schools. And um, schools have spent a considerable amount of money on the optic of safety. We now have single entrances. Some schools have x-ray technology, uh, 
as they as kids come in, there's lots of safety pr- protocols in place um, as a result of you know just the mass number of school shootings that we experience on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've learned is just the optic of safety isn't actually doing anything to help people feel more safe. It's really just um, helping it look more safe. (laughs) And there's this gap between what people see and how people feel in regards to specifically safety. I think that's fascinating. This is my sort of fantasy for a conference. And and so let's just imagine an education conference and let's stay on safety. And let's talk about school safety. Like I am sure teachers don't always feel safe. So what are the sorts of things that happen? So you've got conference goers coming in and part of the conferencing, you know, they're coming into this conference and they're, they're engaging on a platform. So you go into a, you know, a portal and you answer the, it's three to five lines. It's a short narrative and there's some key questions. So you have to come up with a question about safety that you want them to answer. Now just imagine you're in the, in the main hall, like where you do the keynote and there is a map on the uh, screen at the, the at the front with a visual map of these responses sorted out like you have and then now you're now you get into small groups and you're able to engage with what that what the visual map is actually showing and you can click in on any of the dots and see the narratives and you can begin to talk as a as a whole about a, what it feels like, B, maybe what the vision is, if, the, if it didn't feel this way, like what can, what can happen that we won't, would not feel this way. I can see where a facilitation of a session like that would really energize around this, this, this concern around safety. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you honed in on safety because when I'm at learning to change and at modern learners we are focused on learning and we know that people cannot learn if they don't feel safe and yeah. that means in a professional context that means in a education school based context safety is significantly important to one's ability to learn it is absolutely at the foundational level and, you know, even during the pandemic, you know, if we hadn't shut schools down or shut different things down um, as there was so much uncertainty, that level of uncertainty would have made lots of things impossible. And it certainly added to the complexity of what to do at home and how to do it. And like just the sheer overwhelm also changed the way people felt in regards to feeling safe and whatnot. But but at the core of that work was safety. And I think so often we start with all of these other problems, but maybe safety is actually a great place to start. Yeah. So it's fascinating um, how that sort of comes to to fruition. And I'm definitely going to check out um, the sense-making model. And um, just before we move off of sense-making, I just want to go back to the experience I've had with Harold Jarsh or Harold Yarkey. Um, it's J-A-R-C-H-E dot com. Um, he is a prolific organizational change person. And he talks about um, making sense with uh, sort of three different layers. The first, there's our work teams, then there's our communities of practice, and then there's social networks. 
And he, a lot of his work is founded in Albert Bandura's social cognitive theory, basically where we're seeking knowledge. Um, so our work team might look at a community of practice, or we might look to social um, for some information to contribute to our work team. So we're seeking information and then we get that information, but it's in the conversations that we have with other people, whether that be in the community of practice or on social, um, that help us make sense of it. So then we can come back to our work teams and put things in place and see how it works and then talk about it again and then make some tweaks. And so there's this constant seeking, um, sensing, sharing um, cycle. So we seek out the information, we make sense of the information, and then we share the information. And in doing so, we learn and we advance our work teams or we advance our community of practice wherever we're putting that, wherever we're sharing what we've learned and made sense of, we are actually aiding and contributing to the learning of others. And so I'm very curious about SenseMaker as a platform um, and how it takes that that understanding of seek, sense, share, and puts it into the platform and lets technology sort of um, speed up some of that process and allow us a starting point um, with so many uh, data inputs behind it. So I'm fascinated and I cannot wait to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you're saying too. And, and uh, I will also check out this reference that, that you have. Yeah. I think I know the name, but I would like to integrate that. That's really wonderful. Yeah, he's 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 taught me so much. Just he blogs, he essentially blogs almost every day. And he really is on a constant quest to make sense of things. And he talks a lot about um, curating our network and like sort of bringing people in and then sort of honing in and then like cleaning up our network too to make sure we're we're aware of the biases that we have based on who we're taking in information oh, yeah. from. And so he's he's a fascinating person and I appreciate all of the work he's contributed um, in the organizational change space. And actually so much of his work is foundational to the work at Modern Learners. Um, we do a lot of sense making here uh, mm-hmm. and I, I'm very appreciative of that. But I, I really believe that it's a piece of the change process that people don't necessarily pay attention to or or understand. This is a very important point as well. Uh, traditionally, in a lot of organizations, this would be put in that soft skill category. Like uh, I've had this, you know, an interview I did with somebody who's brilliant with engagement. He didn't want engagement in the title. He's like, engagement's just part of the it's part of the process. It's not the part, you know, it's not the main thing. I'm like, I don't know. I kind of think it's the main thing, but nevertheless, it's, it is just an awareness. Everyone I think that's engaged in learning can, can say that the most important part of conference is the conversations you have after the sessions, you know, around at the bar or, you know, over a cup of coffee when you're walking. So it is, so critical to the learning process. And I think that's where this community building is so critical to learning. Yes. Well, and the the thing that's, it's interesting that you talk about engagement, because I think engagement 
um, also it just becomes the big word. But it's hard to get to those granular pieces of what actually it takes to become engaged. So often we leave out the brain science side of that. And safety, again, is a big piece of being engaged. But also our understanding of, you know, what potentially can I contribute? That when when I feel secure in my ability to contribute, I'm clearly more engaged. Um, and there are different times where sometimes I need to take things in and I'm at a very base level of the learning and I'm not yet ready to contribute. So there has to be a time and a space for that level of engagement too. And I also think that Sometimes people look at engagement as like a, you rah, rah, I love this place. It's so great to work here. <laughs> and in reality, um, that's actually not what engagement is. In schools, a lot of times engagement appears to be control and compliance. Kids are paying attention to the teacher and they're sitting in their desks straight and they, they're very engaged. They're making eye contact. But in reality, the kid in the back corner doodling and taking it all in with their ears may be just as engaged, but they don't exhibit yeah. those expect expected engagement look fors. And mm -hmm. so I think that sometimes measuring engagement without getting significant input from the people challenges us. I mean, this is I think this is the huge challenge and you can go at it all different ways. But when I began teaching in the 90s at the the university level, the the first thing I did uh, was to to move students into small groups, which they hated. They had to move the desks around when they came in. And the, and really at that time, which is hard to believe now, the academic world was like, that's so too soft. Like you need to be hitting these hard, you know, mm -hmm. principles. And but I knew that that once they had that exchange going on at the small level, it's at that local level that 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 I was going to be more effective at getting getting the teaching message across. I think that this this message of you know local like how uh, when you're crafting a sense of community and that word is a loaded word, but essentially. What do we need to do? How do we need to design or structure our organizations or our, the experiences of education so that people have an opportunity to contribute meaningfully? And that once they they exercise that and feel that's so empowering, I think then they're able to build skills to work at a higher level of engagement. But we all have to feel that at a very like uh, what it feels like to be in a group and, and to contribute ideas and have those ideas result in some impact on our environment. Yes, absolutely. So Nancy, what are you looking forward to? Where Where is your work and your learning taking you to now? There's, <laughs> I am interested in so many things right now that's happening. I'm trying to find within my community, and, it's, and I think about it as sort of a large, loose community of professionals in local government, <clears throat> but I am sort of crafting within that community those who are able to really talk about some of the, uh, the emergent issues uh, within the field, the profession of municipal government. And so my particular interest right now is really finding some of the, the professionals that are just coming up. And I know that their voices aren't always heard right away, and they may feel just a little less confident speaking about uh, authoritatively about what they're encountering. But that, I think, is what my 
challenges is to bring them together in a way where they can really share the way they see uh, the world from their perspective and offer some of their ideas, which I know are different from some of us who have been around forever. And I, I just would like to build that bridge, you know, between what the traditional models that, you know, we came in with decades ago and what some of the newer models are looking like that, you know, that's coming from their experience and their education and, and just their creative uh, thoughts. So working with some of the younger professionals and some of their ideas and things that are really burning in their minds that they'd like to achieve, I think is just the most exciting thing I can do right now. Yes. And it's, you know, in terms of the activism and voter turnout and uh, movements that are starting, there's certainly a youthfulness to um, some impactful change that's going on. But it's really important that we call out uh, from the grassroots efforts, those people who can serve in those local governments and go through the the bureaucratic processes in some sense um, to get to, to support the movements that are happening from a grassroots perspective. So I think it's really important to um, sort of a full circle. There needs to be those grassroots efforts, but we also need to get people doing really good work, really meaningful work into um, the paid positions within municipal governments. So I, I think that's really important work, retention and recruitment, I think in every <laughs> Uh, we, we talked about retention and recruitment when I was talking with my friend Julia in the healthcare realm. We've talked about retention and recruitment in education. I'm doing a lot of work with um, the state of Montana on their retention and recruitment for young teachers. It seems like all of my colleagues in this mid to late career space are focused on is what are we doing um, with the youth to encourage them to grow and learn. Um, our learning is really important to their learning, but we also have to be willing to learn from them as well. My thought is that you have to be curious enough to know how it is that they see the world and to realize that they, they're going to be the ones that are going to be coming through the next decades as we're winding down. And the best thing we can do is just give them whatever support we can to bring them along and to give them a voice, help their voices be heard and I mean, they're already doing amazing things, but I just, I feel that is where the energy is. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Learning to Change podcast. It has been a pleasure and I'm so excited to stay caught up with the work that you're doing and hear about all of the change that you're helping people make. So thanks so much, Nancy. Thank you, Missy, for having me. It has been a real joy and, and lots of fun to talk to you. And to all of those listening, have a great day. And as I always say, don't get in trouble. Thank you for joining me today on the Learning to Change podcast. I hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. As we continue to explore the power of learning and its impact on change, remember that it's not about pushing yourself or others to change, but about embracing the process of learning. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're ready to take your learning journey to the next level or bring about a culture of learning in your organization, join us in our free Modern Learners community. We are here to help you navigate the challenges and celebrate the successes that come with embracing learning, 
and change. Simply go to modernlearners.community and join us today. You'll find all the resources from today's show in there. Until next time, stay curious and remember, I'm not asking you to change, I'm asking you to learn. Learning to Change is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blaser. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Learning to Change is recorded on the stolen land of the Sauk and Fox tribes, the Miami Nation, the Osati, Shakawi, Sioux, Ho-Chunk, and Kickapoo peoples. Mm-hmm.